Hey everyone, welcome to the 20th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Our guest today is John Isner, one of the best American tennis players of the last 15 years. He's achieved career-high ATP rankings of 8th in singles and 14th in doubles, has won 24 ATP titles in total, and has 29 career wins against top 10 players. On today's episode, we discuss our junior tennis memories together, how college tennis helped prepare him for the pros, what it's like playing the big three, and his best tips to improve your serve. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, John, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Let's do this. You you may know this. I'm trying to think. We've known each other for at least 25 years. I'm trying to remember the first time we played each other, and I'm I'm feeling like it was... I'm visualizing the semifinals of the North Carolina Tar Heel qualifier at Haynes yes, Park. Yes, at Haynes Park. I think that's I think that's when it was. The 14 and unders. Yeah, ooh, you're right. 14 and under. You know what? No, you know what? No, no, it actually dude, I think we played at the state tournament in Chapel Hill. At the Chapel Hill Tennis Club? Yes, um, it, before the qualifier, I think we played at the NC closed whatever. So, which is different from the qualifier if I remember correctly. Yeah, we played in singles there. I think so. I don't think there's any way to find that. Uh, you, you played. You played Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. You don't. You don't have your 12 year old match with me. Like, no, I'm telling you, man. Burned I in feel your memory. Like I played Jonathan Janda at that tournament. I have a picture of that upstairs. And I think I. You know what? Who knows? It probably could have been the qualifier as well. I had to get up to your level. You're you're a year older than me, correct? Yep. And so it might have been your. Your first year, 14, my second year, 12, we must have played in the 14 and under qualifier. So like my, my memory of you is, like you said, you were a year younger than me. And in juniors, for some reason, that's a huge deal. Like I used to get huge very, deal. Like, oh, I can't, I can't lose to someone younger than me and he's pretty good. And so I remember, I do remember playing at the qualifier and I was so tight. And yeah. I obviously thought that was like, the, <laughs> I thought it was like the biggest match in the world, you know, like, oh my God, I could win the North Carolina Tar Heel qualifier. And at that time, I was better than you. I would beat you quite a bit back in the day. But then there was like a, you're going to have to tell me when it was, but you kind of made a leap in juniors. I don't know what year it was for you or when you felt like you kind of went from a good sectional player to a top national player. But when was that for you? Probably, you know, when when you were out of the 14s, luckily, I had a really good year. My second year, 14s in the Southern section actually went undefeated. Uh, I did not have to deal with you. I did not have to deal with Brett Ross or Matt Clower. Brian Baker didn't play. So I remember I went like 32 or 36 and 0 in the 14 and unders in the Southern section. I beat Ryan Young from Charleston, South Carolina in the finals in Macon, Georgia. And I remember being very proud of that because I, you know, I ran the gauntlet and I was, uh, I was, I was undefeated, but there was always the the guys a year two years older than me. I had no confidence that I could beat in juniors because as as you mentioned before, being a thirteen year old and playing a fourteen year old is a huge difference in juniors. It doesn't really become you know I guess to say not a difference until you're about like eighteen or nineteen. But at thirteen and fourteen and fourteen and fifteen, for some reason, even though it's just a year, it's a massive psychological uh, hurdle you have to overcome as, as the younger player. It'd be nice if that was still a hurdle because now that you're 37. Yeah, I know. I know. That's right. (laughs) If all the younger guys on tour were getting super tight. So yeah. So we had a lot of battles when we were younger. And then I, 
you know when you ever start wondering like when you're making up memories like when you have holes in your memory and you start filling in stories so you tell me if i've if i've made a story out of this but we played in the finals of kalamazoo doubles and like you mentioned you played with you played with brett ross yes and my my memory is that you got you specifically john isner the the big serve you were serving for the first set at six five and i vaguely remember you hitting a serve and i barely got it back and rossi spiked an overhead and i begged with the official for an invasion call which means he reached over my side (laughs) of the net and hit it and we actually got the call and then we're able to break you and win the tiebreaker is that correct? yes it was either five four or six five what 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 the game score was i don't know but we were serving for the set you lobbied had the official in your pocket you must have (laughs) by the way that never gets called and you're allowed to reach over allow as long as long as you don't but the i guess the thing is is maybe the 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 ball was clearly on our side of the net and Rossi, who knows judgment call from the, um, from the ref. It could have been at like 15 all, even 30 all that game it was a big point. And we could not recover from there because you guys were the, the number one seeds for sure. And, you know, we were playing for a chance to go to the US open, which, which was a huge deal. We, I remember that again, just like I said, playing you, okay, you're, you're below me, but you had already now established yourself as one of the best players. And that's, that's I usually use that example as know the rules because I barely got the return back. It was close, like whatever. Like you said, I've never gotten that call ever. That yeah. was the one time. Yeah. And I begged for it. And it's like, hey, that one time that flipped the match, just knowing that I could beg for the official that I was talking to uh, every day of the week at Kalamazoo trying to butter him up. But exactly. Um, okay. Totally. Well, we were, it was, that was, that was a brutal blow. We were riding high. We beat Prakash, former guest of yours, and Steven Armitage, I believe, in the semis. They had won like a few matches on like the tour prior to that or something. They like won some matches on tour. So like Rossi and I were like ecstatic, like, holy crap, we just beat these guys. What a win. Uh, but we couldn't keep it going in the, in the finals, uh, losing that first set tie. It was probably six and two or something like that. I mean, we, we were, we were cooked. That sounds about right. Yeah. So those those were my glory days when when I can look back and say that I got a couple wins over you. But you know, like I said, you became a top junior player, and then you went to Georgia. Yes. Were you ever considering going straight pro, or was it always going to yeah. be a, a college path for you? Always going to be college. I mean, I I mean, as you mentioned, I was one of the top recruits in college, but I was not nearly good enough to go pro. I mean, there was no question that my goal in high school was to get a college scholarship. And I felt very confident that I, that I could do that. And even high school, after my senior year going into Georgia, I still didn't have pro aspirations. I was just fired up that I was going to go play, you know, a high level uh, college tennis. And I knew I wanted to stay all four years as well. And it really wasn't till my junior year in college, I became the number one player in the country that then, so this is, you know, 20 almost 21 years old that then I wanted to turn pro because literally my, after my freshman and, and sophomore years, no, at no point in my first years at Georgia, did I, did I have pro aspirations? Uh, it definitely was my junior year. I felt like I was good enough to go pro and I definitely wanted to give it a shot, but I also had one more year left of college. So I knew I wanted to, to stick around for that. So you didn't have your, your lack of pro aspirations in the beginning were because you just didn't think you were going to be good enough. And then you yes. kind of jumped a level and you went, you went, oh man, I might be able to make some money and, and do some cool things playing tennis. Not even make money. I remember telling myself and friends that I could make ends meet on the pro tour. You know, I'm, you know, I'm looking at 
what you can make to you make the semifinals of a challenger. And it's like, oh yeah, that's decent money. I could definitely cover my expenses. And after taxes, I might make a couple hundred bucks that week. And that's, that's pretty cool. You know, and then I'm probably, you know, looking into the, the cheap rent that I'd be playing that, I, sorry, excuse me, that I'd be paying wherever I was living. And I just figured I could, could make ends meet. I, de- I definitely wanted to give myself a shot to play in, you know, grand slams, get myself ranked high enough to get into qualifying of Grand Slam and stuff like that. And I knew I, I could attain that, you know, during my junior year, my senior year of college, but I, I you know, I didn't know I, I would do as well as, I, as, as I've done in my career. You played for Manny Diaz, who's, I'm pretty sure he's already in the Hall of Fame. If he's not, he, he surely, surely will be. He's, he's been there for 30 years. He's won probably like 20 SEC titles. 30, more like 35, 37 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he is a legend in the sport. Was there anything that he or your assistant coaches did with you that you felt like helped you reach that level to where you, you felt confident trying to go pro? Yeah, I mean, look, Coach Diaz was huge. You know, like going to Georgia, he was he, he meant a, a, a lot to me. I think more than – it wasn't so much X's and O's with him, but I think he instilled a very good work ethic in me. I mean, I in juniors, like I, I worked hard. But I mean, I wasn't the hardest worker in the world. I, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I, I, as I said, I didn't have pro aspirations. I just wanted to go to college. I would kind of just check some boxes here and there. Somewhere along the line in college, probably during my freshman year, I got hurt my freshman year. My, my low back kind of went out on me and, and I felt like I really hurt our team and I hurt our chances to, to do very well because I missed a lot of matches. And then by the time I was able to finally get back on the court, I wasn't in match shape at all. And I, and I lost a lot of matches and I lost a lot of big matches. So I made a, a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to let my body break down on me because being as big as I am or as I was back then and gangly, and I just wasn't strong at all. I needed to really work on my body. So after my freshman year, I really dedicated myself to, to really getting in the gym and really enjoying that. So it was probably my sophomore year of college where I just really started to work as hard as I possibly could, especially in the gym, because I knew for me and my stature, uh, that was the most important thing I can do is to stay in the gym and get as strong as I possibly could. Because even at 20 years old, I was still so um, underdeveloped. And uh, Manny was a large part of that. He knew that I could do some great things for his team, for the school, but I needed to be healthy to do so. And he told me, look, you know, every you know, as you know, Jonathan, in college, you have everything at your disposal, which is great. You have great players to practice with. You have great players to push you on the court, push you in the gym. You have a strength coach with you all, with you all the time. So I really took advantage of that. And I, I guess sort of transformed my body a little bit and became a lot stronger and made me a lot healthier and became a better player for it. You matured physically, obviously the the match experience of dual matches and at Georgia, you're playing in the biggest college matches you can. So you're getting big match experience against top players. Uh, I remember one year, which is funny. Do you remember when we played at National Indoors? Of course. I was actually going to bring that. I was wondering if you were going to bring it up. So I, th- I, thought okay, def- just, definitely. I thought you were just being too humble and, and you weren't going to bring it up. No, I'm going to bring it up because I want to let the audience decide real quickly if your gesture at the end. Do you remember what happened at the end of the match? Yes. I'm about to tell the story. Okay. Yes. So for I, anyone I, out there who doesn't I, know. I, think I remember, but I was definitely, yeah, you know, I, I I was my sophomore year, I believe. So it would have been your junior year. Yes, I, w- I was a junior. So so college, college D1 rules here. You play two out of three doubles matches at the start of a match and whatever team wins that gets a team a team point. After that, there's six singles matches. Every match counts for a point. 
And when you're at a national tournament, once one of the teams gets to four points, any match that's still being played gets stopped. Done. Uh, so on that particular day, the Duke Blue Devils were absolutely housing the Georgia Bulldogs in the backdrop of the national indoor tournament. Manny was none too pleased. I remember. Uh, <laughs> I'll bet. And another side note, we played two singles at that tournament. I played two singles and I played you and Benjamin Becker back to back. That's How the hell am I playing those two guys at two singles, exactly. not even one singles. So I'm playing you and I think we won the doubles and we're looking across the board. We're looking up and down the lineup and all the Duke guys were beating you. And so what happens in that situation is a lot of the Georgia Bulldogs will start moving very slowly in between points because if your teammate loses before you and the team gets to four, your match goes down as a DNF, which means it's like you never played. doesn't matter if you're up or down. Six, four, five, two, 40 love serving DNF. Exactly. It's, it's brutal. And obviously individual rankings and all American status and things like that, getting into the tournament individually, those results matter. So we were playing and I believe I was up either five, two or five, three in the third, and you were serving 30, 40 mm-hmm. and the Duke blue devils clinched the match to go up four, one. And it was over. Yes. Yes. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? And I, I think <laughs> I think you walked up to the net and you said, look, I'll play you this point. Yes. And if you win, if you win the point, you can have the match. But if I win it, it's going down as a DNF, which you did not have to do. So I thought that was very generous. Then you walked back and, and I promptly hit it. I promptly hit an ace out wide. Correct. And I knew you were going there. So I was reading your serve all day. I was just in your head. I was one step ahead. And I was like, I know where it's going. And you hit that puppy 130 on like a sideways angle. Yeah. And part of me was like, he knew he was going to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's what it was. That's what it was. So the pressure of the match, the team match was off because we had just lost. So I was very confident that I could win one point against you on my serve. Now, it wasn't about to finish out the whole match because let's say I hold serve, you're going to hold serve and win the match. So it wasn't that nice, right? I didn't give you the chance to hold serve on a super fast indoor court at five, four in the third. I gave you one opportunity to win the match and <laughs> luckily I was able to hit an ace and it went down as a DNF. It was so funny. Everyone on the team was laughing. They're like, he really let you play one more point. And I'm like, yeah, but he aced me. Like he's yeah, such exactly. a jerk. Like he knew, exactly. he knew he was going to do it. It's not like, you know, if, if you were serving 40, 30, you know, maybe I don't do it. I don't know. <laughs> So, okay, look, you played all these big college matches. Uh, and then I remember, so you went pro that senior year. And I remember watching in the summer and I'm pretty sure you had a great DC and you were kind of doing yep. well on that summer circuit. And I think you played Federer at the open that first year. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. 2007. And I think that was, yeah. So I think that was round of 16. He obviously just retired. Yep. Uh, what was that like for you going from college and then immediately having success and being on the biggest stage in the world, playing one of the greatest ever? Well, that was unbelievable because, you know, that's first of September and in May of the same year, I was unranked playing NCAAs in, in, in Athens, Georgia. So to be say it was unexpected would be uh, an understatement. So I never thought I'd be at that stage. It was the third round actually, actually playing Roger Federer. And that's, you know, that's when if you look at like Roger Federer 2007 results, like he never lost in 2007. Like it was like 2005 to like 2012 was like ridiculous numbers. And, and so I was playing him on Arthur Ashe and it was a virtual unknown. I mean, I get, you know, I made the finals at DC a couple weeks prior, but 
being able to play him on that court, I was a bit overwhelmed. But because of my serve, I was able to stay in the first set. He had never seen it before and actually won the first set off of him. And the place erupted. I remember like Dick Inberg at CBS was calling the match. I mean, it was a huge deal for me. Like, I just remember that, you know, it's like, what an iconic voice. And I won the first set seven, six, but look, I had zero shot to win the match. And it was like six, two, six, four, six, two him or something like that. But what an experience for me, like fresh out of college. I was definitely at that point, I believe I was way ahead of my learning curve at that stage. I mean, I left college. I had won a lot in college. So I had a lot of confidence going into these pro tournaments I was going to play. And I won way more than I thought I was going to win because I really had no pressure on myself, like none. Every match I went into play, I was the underdog. No one knew who I was. If I lost, not a big deal. If I won, okay, great. Zero pressure. And I played like that the whole summer and was able to, was able to do some uh, pretty good things right out of college. Would you say you prefer to be in that situation as the underdog or would you prefer now in hindsight, you've had all the success you've got in the top 10. Do you like being a heavy favorite or do you like that feeling of the no pressure situation? Truthfully, it's a good feeling. I should say good feeling. It's a good thing when you're the heavy favorite because that means you've done some great things and you're ranked high and you deserve to be the heavy favorite, but it's much easier to play as the underdog. It just flat out is. I mean, I've played, I've lost to a lot of American players younger than I am ranked below me in fairly big tournaments because I feel like all the pressures have you know been on myself over the last you know five, seven, ten years when I have been in those matches. And of course I've won a lot too, but you know, I think that's that just goes to show like how how good these these guys at the top of our game have been for so long. Cause every match that their opponents play against them are pretty much their Super Bowl. And they're up against that every single time. So being the heavy favorite in a tennis match, just in sports in general, team sports, individual sports, it's tough. And it's a lot more fun and free to play as the underdog. And so for sure, I mean, I've played a lot of thinking back in my career. When I've been the underdog, that's probably when I've played uh, my best tennis. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you ended up beating Roger twice, Rafa twice, and Novak once. So when you're talking about those guys and they're always heavy favorites, did you beat them more times than that or am I wrong on that? No, you have it almost right. It was Rafa once, Novak twice, Roger twice. Roger twice. So you've been those guys five times, which I don't know how many people in the world can say that. You don't have to tell me who the GOAT is, but I want you to tell me which one of those three has been the most challenging for you to play against. It's probably Novak. Even though I've played Rafa on clay, off the top of my head, I've played him on clay like four times, I think. Once at the French Open, you know, that's one of the toughest tasks in our sport. In sports, period, is beating that guy on clay. and But even more so than that, beating him at, as we know, Roland Garros. But I would say it's Novak it, when he's locked in and dialed and taking my serve standing on the baseline returning my first serve and just anticipating my where my serve is going like i've i've felt helpless on the court i probably count the times on my hand i felt helpless uh on on one hand where like i knew i had no shot and i wasn't even i was having huge trouble holding serve and three of those times have been against novak i played him in beijing years ago i'm just gonna throw out a, probably 2015 let's say in the quarterfinals it's a big match it's a big tournament 
and I'm fired up to play him in the quarters and going to bed that night and I look on my weather app and just checking out the weather for because we were we were playing at night the next day. I was just wanted to see the weather and boom, a cold front came through and in, in China and it was like 48, going to be 48 degrees uh, Fahrenheit for my match against Novak in Beijing in a tournament where he like never loses that. He had some, he was on like a 23 match win streak there. And I was like, I'm screwed because <laughs> if it's 48 degrees and heavy conditions against Novak who never loses at this tournament, there's no shot. I went out there. It was freezing, freezing cold, zero free points. And I lost two and two. So to answer your question, it's, 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 it's Novak. What do you think separates those three? Obviously, three the three probably best tennis players of all time on the men's side. Mm-hmm. What are the common traits between those guys that you think separates them from other great players? You were a top 10 player, and you, you, you've had an amazing career. What, what separates them from the other great players of their generation? I would say their demeanor. It's, I mean, obviously, we know how the, the, the skills they have on the court, but it's sort of a kind of an intangible thing. Their, their demeanor and, and their confidence, their confidence in their ability to win the match that they're playing at, especially at a Grand Slam, knowing that they have a lot more runway to work with. Of course, somebody can play really well and take a first set off them, even take two sets off of them, but to win, to win three sets off these guys in a grand slam format is just so tough. So they're, I, I would say their, their, their demeanor and their confidence and the swagger that they carry every time they take the court really propels them to these ridiculous heights that they've been able to get to. You, your career high was eight in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was in 2018, maybe. Am I wrong? On that? I got there in 2012 too. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, but everyone always says I achieved in 2018, but I'm pretty certain I, Achieved it in, in in twelve, and I actually should have been seven in the world. There was a ranking weird deal where I was sick in be- Beijing, coincidentally, and I took the court. And I, in retrospect, I sorry, I did not take the court. I pulled out, and I should have taken the court. Had I taken the court and lost, I actually would have been ranked in a weird way number seven as my career high. But that's neither here nor there. It's eight. Never got the seven, but uh, but I got the eight in. 2012 and 2018. So in the Stokey official rankings, I'll, I'll, I'll list you as seven. I'll maybe go up go. and update your uh, Wikipedia page. But what what was it in your game? Can you give me actual physical shots or tactics or whatever? So when you jumped into the top 10, what was it that was hot in your game or that was working well that took you from, say, 25 to eight? What was that leap like? Well, I mean, look, it's not rocket science with my game. I'm not going to say it was my movement or my backhand or my return to serve. I, I think at, at that stage, everyone knows that I play a lot of just inherently close matches, which was how my game style is. That's just how it is. is how it's been my whole career. And when I get in close matches, there's been some times, lots of times where I, no matter what, feel like I'm going to win this match, whether it's six and five or seven, six in the third, I am calm the whole way through. And I have so much confidence on the flip side of that. I've had lost countless matches, seven, six in the third as well. But when I've been on a roll, I've been winning a lot of close matches and I just feel super calm in those big moments because it's a situation I've, I've been in a lot. So what got me to say 25 to eight was coming through, I guess, in the clutch a lot of times in those close matches and each time is sort of a snowball effect. No matter really who I was playing, I felt like 
I was I was going to win. And in 2012, if I remember correctly, the first time I entered the top 10, I beat Novak, who was number one in the world, seven, six in the third in, in the semifinals of Indian Wells to enter the top 10. So that just goes to show that I had that underdog thing going for me. It got into a third set tiebreaker situation. I was very, very comfortable in because I had built up a lot of equity in my previous matches and coming through in, in, in close encounters. And it's one of the situations that even though I was playing the number one to play the world, I was fairly certain that I was going to win and I was going to put the pressure on him and was able to do that. But that's just one of the two wins I had against him. I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, we're not going to do Instagram questions yet. You actually had a ton, which is not shocking. But one of the questions was that you play so many tiebreakers because of your style. And they wanted to know what your best tips are for navigating your way through a breaker, feeling comfortable if your tactics change. H- how do you get through a breaker? Well, look, I think it's important to, when returning, the goal is to try to get one. You know, just try to get one point on my opponent's serve. Oftentimes, that's really all it takes. If I can get one point on my opponent's serve in a tiebreaker, whether it's one all, he misses a forehand, boom, I'm up 2-1. Next thing I know, two two serve, two points, I'm up 4-1. And I can kind of not roll, but go on to win from there. So I think for me, is trying to not get skunked twice in a row on, on my opponent's serve. It's much easier said than done, of course. but that's what I focus on. And a lot of times in those situations in a tiebreaker, that's when, even if it's deep into a match, that's when I have, you know, the most adrenaline, even if it's two and a half, three hours into a match, third set tiebreaker, I'm tired, but the finish line is near and I'm going to hit my best serves. And I serve my best in tiebreakers, I feel like. And I serve my best in third set tiebreakers a lot of the time. So just for me, it's, I'm a lot different. I rely on my serve, obviously, so much, but it's just putting pressure on my opponents with winning, I guess, three points on my serve and then taking my chances after that. There's a lot of things that you learn just through experience, match play, uh, successes, failures over your you know time on tour. It's been, it's been a while now. What are, what's maybe the main thing that you've learned about the game or having success in the court that you've learned strictly through your playing experience? Oh, that's a very good question. It's that, I guess I would say that you cannot take a breather with training, whether it's the off season, whether it's in between tournaments, you just absolutely cannot take a breather. If you're healthy and able to go, you got to keep working as hard as you possibly can. I know that everyone else is doing that. All these European players, these guys are, you guys are rabid, man. I mean, they are hungry. They want it so bad. So I have to sort of match that, you know, and you don't want to go on the court. For me, I don't want to go on the court ever feeling like my opponent is, you know, outworks me off the court. And this sort of kind of messes me up, you know, in in my mind a little bit. It kind of, it's that's not a good feeling. So as long as I'm, you know, I'm physically able to work hard and do what I can do, I do that to the best of my ability, and I go on the court with a lot of confidence. So I just know this from past experiences: you cannot take a breather. Um, I, maybe I have once or twice in my career and I don't, and and my results show that in a one tournament or a two tournament stretch. So you just cannot do that. I know I can't. And that's what, one of the reasons I think I've been so successful is, uh, I I really do work hard and I really do enjoy the process of trying to get better. I enjoy the process of trying to get better at an older age. I have to definitely adapt my training 
to my age and how my body feels because I don't feel nearly as, as good as I did 10 years ago. But I enjoy that. That's tinkering with practice. And oftentimes it means less time on court, way more time in the gym. And I really do enjoy that. So everything about it, I've learned through a lot of experience. And it's something that I guess I, should, I, I don't take for granted. And it's super special to play a sport for a living. And I want to play as long as I can at a high level. And so that's why that's why I work so hard at it. I, I will say I'm I'm so impressed when I, I see how well you're still doing. I like you said, I'm a year older than you, so I'm 38 and I hit in with my kids yesterday. And by the way, was playing awesome. I'm convinced, look, if you Swan Song wildcard open, I mean I'm like three months away. Dude, from, from I've always ball. told you that if you want to play doubles, <laughs> you have a long runway to play doubles if you want to. Um, yeah, I'm like, I'm like 38 and Raj is one in the world. I'm like, maybe I should make a comeback. I was playing awesome. But that's also part of the reason why I think I had to cancel. The, we were supposed to record this last night and I did have allergies, but I also had a raging headache. And I was like, maybe it's because I'm so out of shape that an hour and a half of playing 16 year old boys got me gassed. You're and probably you're dehydrated and gassed and worn out. No, but no, exactly. That, I, you, I, once you, once you hit, enter your thirties, I mean, if you like for me, I mean, this is no joke. If I just take two days off of training, like I feel terrible. Like my body feels terrible. My knee hurts. My elbow hurts. Everything hurts, which is why I I don't really relent ever when it comes to training. I at least try to work out in some capacity at at the very least every single day. And I try to build that into, you know, each each day, because if I don't, I know how bad my body feels and I just can't afford that if I want to keep playing. Lots of Instagram questions. Your time on tour, you've had a bunch of coaches, juniors, you had great developmental coaches. We talked about Manny at Georgia. Is there one piece of advice that really stuck out over your entire career? We're like, you know what? This this coach said this to me and it opened my eyes or I saw the game a different way. Is there anything that sticks out? No, I wouldn't say a piece of advice, one thing that a coach said but I do remember one time at Georgia, I remember this vividly. It was my sophomore year and we were practicing and I was being a punk on the court. And I, I remember it uh, pretty clearly. And Manny was not too happy with me. And he got up in my face and just gave it to me. And I think he might've kicked me out of practice. I wasn't happy at the time and it was quite embarrassing, but it was also something that I really needed at the time because he did snap me back into action. Um, I apologized and I really respected that from him. So for all the coaches I've had, I've always wanted them to to challenge me. And if I'm being a punk on the court, which I feel like I'm not most of the times, but sometimes I am, I want them to tell me, I want them to call me out. Cause I like that. I like that tough love, but that was really the first time I really got it in a, in a hard way that affected me initially negatively, but Ultimately, it was a positive thing because uh, I came back much better for it. So to answer your question, I, it's not one thing a coach said, but it was that one time with Manny my sophomore year, I'll never forget it. That's why I'm reciting the story right now. But uh, it was um, something something that I needed, and I and I've, haven't acted like that much since then. I know pro coaching is, is different, but I've, I've always told my kids, like, discipline is love. And I'm like, yeah. look, if you if if you're doing something lazy or, or you're acting like an idiot, and I don't say anything, that's a bad sign. Yeah, 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 totally. So you know, they always go, ah, oh, you're kind of getting on me. You don't you don't let me take a breath. I'm like, yeah, because I want you to be awesome. I want you. Yeah, I know exactly. this is good for you. Um, and so I'm always trying to try to explain that to them. 
mean, you're right. Pro coaching is different because it's one of the few sports where the quote unquote talent, the player hires the coach. So, so, you know, in a sense, the player is, you know, the, the, the coach's boss, which is a weird dynamic in a team sport or, or in junior tennis, like that player is not hiring you, right? They don't have the resources to do that. Or in a, or in a team sport, you know, the players don't hire the coach. So it's, so it's very, very different. So it's a, it's a weird dynamic, especially in tennis. Uh, a lot of times coaches might tiptoe around that and not, not want to get into any sort of altercation with the player for fear of maybe losing their job. I've always told my coaches to give it to me if I'm being a punk and, you know, tell me exactly what they think at all times. Cause that's, that, that's how I'm going to grow. You played one of the most famous matches of all time, uh, 70, 68, the Wimbledon, this Wimbledon match. And by the way, thank you so much. Cause I believe I was at wake forest coaching the women and I was at summer camp with these kids and it was a zillion degrees and they all were like, Hey, can we go inside and watch the match? And I'm like, yeah, air conditioning, watching tech. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. And I was just <laughs> praying for that thing to last forever. Uh, this person wanted to know what you were thinking when you were serving for it at 6968. No, no, I, I never was serving for it. I, I was always serving to go up one oh, game. Oh, you were, you were, you were breaking for it. So you're, yeah, sorry, to, to go up one game. So therefore, I was never down match point. I might, I might have been down some virtual match points, maybe break points at 30 all or something like that if he breaks the matches over but um never an actual match point i had match points i think i had one at like eight seven or something in the fifth and it's like not hilarious i always look back like what if he just double faulted or what if he i think he aced me or like but what if he just missed a volley on that eight seven no one would ever talk about the that match but of course he didn't do it and thing went on forever and ever and ever it was a ridiculous match to be a part of it wasn't truthfully wasn't any fun to be a part of it was a miserable <laughs> a miserable experience sort of a nightmare you know there was just we just kept going neither one of us gave up of course there was a lot of tactical mishaps from both of us a lot of things we were both doing very very wrong but at a certain point it just became survival out there and you weren't wasn't so much about thinking it was hard to think clearly out there because you were just so exhausted you're just trying to we were just trying to compete as, as best as we could. As miserable as that was, was there ever a point where you were just like, I just can't, I, I, you know, whatever, it's a match, I'm about to lose it? Or were you just like dug in, especially once you started getting later and you're going, okay, this is 50 all, this is going down in history, I'm winning this thing. Yeah, so like when it was the second day was, was the real crazy day and we were playing and it was 35 all, 36 all. And like, I knew that like, we didn't have that long of a runway to finish the match. I mean, let's say we only had an hour, 15 minutes left because we were going to run out of daylight. And so I just wanted to, I knew the match literally wasn't going good. Wasn't going to go on forever that day. Cause they were going to have to stop it eventually. So on that second day, that was my goal at the very least was just to get to that finish line and try to finish them off the next day. So yeah, I dug in as, as best as I could. I, I remember telling my coach, I was working with Craig Boynton at the time and I was in Tampa, Florida and, I didn't play a warm up event for Wimbledon. I played a lot on the clay that, that year. So I was a little bit, I didn't want to go back over to Europe so soon. It was so hot in Florida. And we put in, you know, a good two and a half weeks of training or whatever. And I remember telling him, because playing at Wimbledon, most of the time, it's pretty easy conditions wise. Doesn't get too hot, it's never humid. And I said, I feel like I could play forever at Wimbledon because I was just training three hours a day, four hours, you know, three hours on the court, two hours in the gym a day in the Tampa, Florida 
heat in June. It was miserable and June and July. So I knew I was in good shape. I knew I could last a long time out there. I didn't think I could last that long though. Uh, this question, usually, I don't know some username on Instagram. I have no idea who they are. This person was very clear that they wanted to know who they who they were when they were asking this. This comes from Jessica Pagula. She's uh, currently the fifth-ranked player on the WTA Tour. Yes, know her. She said she just, broke, she just got broken five times in the second set against Iga, and she says, I want to know what your best tips for developing a better serve are. I know that she lost Iga, but she, she got broken five times in one set alone. I'm pretty sure she lost the second seven five, and she broke. I think she broke Ega five Which, times. That's, it was that's, four or five like, times. Yeah, of course she had to have broken that many times. That's incredible. The fact that she broke five times in one set. I haven't broke five times. Like <laughs> Isn't that you. awesome? Um, yeah, it's it's awesome. But I, you know, I Jessica, I'm just gonna have to tell you, you're gonna have to grow a little bit, <laughs> get a little taller, <laughs> and uh, start hitting that serve for, from a steeper angle. It should help. But no, that's, you know, she's one that's, you know, it's the fact that she's gotten the top 10 in the world on the back, on, on the backs of her fantastic returning and movement and shot making, not because of her serve, even though she has a good serve, but she's a, she doesn't need to do anything with her game. I think she's on the right track. There were obviously like a lot of, a lot of people who asked that question, right? What are his tips on the serve? Is there anything technical? So do you get offended when, I mean, obviously your serve helps that you are so tall, but you also have a beautiful motion. Do you ever get offended that it's like, oh, well, you're just good because you can serve well? I actually, yeah, that's a good question. I actually do because people just assume that I just get out of bed, grab a bucket of balls and hit some serves and call it a day. Like that's not the case. I mean, I think the fact that just keeping myself healthy is a feat, feat in its own, being so big and you know being older now. Um, but I work on my game a lot and I'm always trying to improve. And so, yeah, I, I, that, I do kind of take offense to that because people naturally think that big servers have it easy. And, and in a sense, we do because we get a lot of free points. But we also, on the flip side, it's not easy in a lot of uh, aspects of the game out there. I mean, I wish I could be five foot ten returning server running side to side, but that's not the case. Right. I, I always find that interesting because th- that's happened at every stage of tennis. You go, oh, that guy's only, he's, you know, he's only good because he's got a forehand. Mm-hmm. If you're good, you're good. And yeah, you do exactly. other things well. Like, yeah, you, you can't have holes, and so it's like, yeah, sure. Novak's Novak's only good because his return is insane. <laughs> you know, like he does other things well. But I, I always thought I, I wondered about that about you because that's obviously a big thing. But I can see the motion, and I've known you growing up. And I go, well, he's doing other things well enough to get to eight in the world slash seven mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, exactly. Right. So no, no, it, 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 you know, for sure. I mean, I look, I all I know is I know the work I put in and. It's a lot more than just going out there, hitting some serves, hitting a few forehands and calling it a day. Is there any one, do you have a toss focus? Do you have a, a focus with your motion that you could share with someone who's more like a 4-0 player or like a 14-year-old junior that's working on their serve? Well, for me, every serve is a little bit different. I mean, I try to keep my toss exactly the same at all times. So that's that kind of pure kind of like, let's say, you know, if you're looking at the clock, kind of like 1230, maybe a little bit one o'clock on my, on my toss every single time. I know I'm afforded that, I guess, ability to do that because I think I can hit either spot with the exact same toss every single time. So yeah, a, a lot of my focus is on my toss and making sure that my left arm stays up as long as, long as it, it possibly can. Because in doing that, that allows me to get 
you know, a lot more accuracy on my serve. And times when I'm missing my first serve, it's probably because my my left my left arm is dropping too soon. So that that's a focus of mine when I am missing a lot of first serves. Uh, my left foot, my front foot, I don't move at all. So I put it right up on the line. So I'm not cheating myself at all. Some players are inch and a half, two inches behind the line before they hit their serve. I put my left foot right up on that line. And I know that it never, ever moves. And so I cock back with my right leg and, and go from there. So those are the things I focus on. I think I've somewhere along the line, I used to move my left foot a little bit, but I stopped that, uh, keep that foot completely still, um, keep my left arm up for a long time and just go after it. That's great. That's great advice. Did you, you know, some people, they talk and talk about the toss being like 12 o'clock. Is that always something you've been out to the right? Like that's what I teach, but there's a lot of people and a lot of other coaches that kind of say, oh yeah, you want to hit a big first serve. You want to put that right on top of your head. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Did you ever try that? No, I, I kind of like it like it in between 12 and one. I mean, that's just where I like it. I think that's, that's the best place to do it. The only time I will ever alter that is if I'm dealing with the sun. And it just, I, I have to, I have to, you know, maybe toss it behind or toss it to the side a little bit, but that's the only ever time I'll, I'll ever, I'll ever mess with that. And la- last segment, you're, you're a special guest. Uh, you know, we always have my questions, Instagram questions. You, like we mentioned, you've been top 10 in the world in one discipline, which is incredible. How many people can say that you're also, you're not quite top 10 in the world, but you are a back-to-back defending fantasy football champion. <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, you know, it's painful because we just played and it was a pillow fight and you're you're currently one and one on the season. I'm 0-2. I need to know how you do it because I'm I'm struggling. I suck. Tell me your secrets now. Well, you don't you don't need to know my secrets. You were you were me before I was. I mean, you were you had a one point one back to back or three and four years or something like that, but you've you've hit hard times lately. And you might low on be, confidence. Yes, low on confidence. Maybe you're a little bit over the hill. I don't know. Uh, our group chat seems to think so. But <laughs> to be honest, Stokey, I don't, I don't look at your team, man. <laughs> I don't see much. They're awful. This is the first year. Like I, I, I feel like you, it's like you got a losing streak. Until, like I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know who to pick up. I don't know who to draft. Yeah. Everything I do is wrong. And everything Brutal. you do is right. You're like on one of those hot streaks where you win all those six and the thirds. But. Yeah, I, it's exactly right. Because when I had when I won two years ago, I had no business winning. My team was far away the worst team in the playoffs, but I got hot in the playoffs. That's what that's what you know. Happened. I believe I believe that year I dropped Tom Brady and you picked him up, and I never got like yes. a Venmo, like a I, I never got <laughs> a little hey thanks thanks for thanks for making a terrible play and helping me. It was just. Yeah, just relentless. Because as we know, chat. Brady over the years, he's maybe doing it again right now. He looks terrible for a handful of games, and if he, he's your fancy quarterback, he probably drives you mad. Uh, but Dak Prescott broke his leg that year, and I needed a quarterback, and he was available. And then, of course, he caught absolute fire, and he lit up the Lions in our Super Bowl. I remember for like six TDs in one half alone. I was playing Stephen Armitage, your former teammate. Um, it was just good times. Fantasy football is great. We have a good, we have a good group, as you know. And if you're not out of it at zero and two. I made the playoffs once from zero and six. So that that is that's that go, that goes down in the history books. But I mean, I would argue, is it a great time because I cheer for the Jets and they win three times a year, and then my fantasy team sucks. All I do is lose. That's all football is for me is losing. Well, dude, I cheer for the Panthers, and they're zero and two. <laughs> they don't seem like. 
Lisa Jets. I mean, what a win for the Jets last week. I know. Animals. I mean, yeah. that was ridiculous. I mean, Nick Chubb, as he went on record saying he shouldn't have scored. The game would have been over. But, uh, you know, anyways. But uh, you, you'll see. I'm starting Geno Smith this week in fantasy. I, I figured you would appreciate that because you at one point, when you were in your, in your heyday, when you were toying with all of us, you started him one week when you didn't have to and you still won. Le- legendary troll move. All right. Well, John, look, I, I th- thanks for, thanks for joining. I know you're a busy man and um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be having you on here soon sometime in the future. Absolutely. John, I'd love to do it again, man. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again to John for joining us today. Normally 90% of our text exchanges consist of him ripping me from my fantasy team and him talking about how great the Georgia Bulldogs are at football. So it was nice to have an actual conversation for a change. It was great to hear his perspective on playing as the underdog and embracing that challenge instead of being intimidated by a higher-ranked player. Also, we clearly can't get serving tips from a better player. So take his advice, work on trying to get a consistent toss out to the right in that 12.30 to 1 o'clock area while keeping your left arm up as long as you can and see if that helps improve your serve consistency and accuracy. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.